Today we're uh, joined by Kieran Hannan. Kieran is the CMO of Belkin International, a US consumer manufacturer of, uh, of electronics with a particular bias towards um, products related to connectivity. Uh, Kieran is a native of uh, Ireland, but he spent the last 20 years or so living on the west coast of America, which uh, lucky, lucky man. Uh, and Kieran has um, worked in the course of his career for a number of different businesses in different industries in different parts of the world. So welcome, Kieran, and perhaps you could give us a little bit of uh, your background uh, and what brought you to where you are today. Sure. Thank you, Andy. That's a very, very kind introduction. I certainly am don't think of myself as a guru, so uh, probably should set that straight with your uh, listeners today. But I'm very, very honoured to be your first uh, person uh, on your inaugural um, growth um, session today. So thank you. Yes, I am um, in the States 31 years. I'm actually from Dublin. And the uh, first half of my career was in the ad world, running ad agencies, and in that guise, achieving some great growth in professional services. And then the second half of my career has been in what I would classify in the, in the mobile digital retail space, everything from head of marketing Radio Shack to a number of startups in the mobile space, including uh, Helio, which is a joint venture between SK Telecom and Earthlink. And that was a very rapid growth environment uh, on track for 200 million in revenues in less than three years. And that was sold to Virgin Mobile. And so today I am CMO of Belkin International. We actually have four brands in the Belkin International portfolio. Belkin itself is a 34-year-old company founded in a garage by Chet Pipkin in his parents' garage 34 years ago. And one of the very early products that he uh, identified as a need for in the marketplace was actually a serial printer cable connecting a Mac uh, PC, a Mac, to a printer. And fast forward today, 34 years later, Belkin International is a billion dollar plus private uh, company. Been private the whole time under Chet's uh, leadership and vision. And has, uh, over the years, has certainly been part of some amazing launches. For instance, when uh, the iPod was launched, uh, Steve Jobs held it up on stage with a Belkin mic attached to it as a way to record. And so over the years, we've had a number of great successes um, tied with Apple and other major brands. So that's the first brand in the Belkin international portfolio. The second brand uh, that we acquired four years ago is Linksys. And similarly in the space that Belkin is a leader in uh, connecting people to the experiences they wish with their devices, Linksys is a leader in connecting people through, via Wi-Fi and routers, routers, as you would say, in some parts of the world. And we all know the importance of Wi-Fi in today's smart home world. More and more devices require Wi-Fi to enable those experiences, and, um, and we're delivering some incredible products in that space. And then our third brand which started about four years ago, four and a half years ago, as a product under um, Belkin, is our Wemo brand. And Wemo is for the smart home, started as the very first uh, smart plug. And today, fast forward today, we are a leader, uh, one of those leaders in the smart home space, along with brands like Nest and so forth. So those are our three brands until this summer. And welcome a new baby. 
So if you think about it, a 34-year-old company in Belkin, about a 29-year-old company in uh, Linksys, a five-year-old company in Wemo, and a five-month company in a joint venture we have called Finn. That's P-H-Y-N. And Finn is a result of some of the work we were doing with the Wemo brand in the smart home, in particular around smart metering technology for water. And we recognized we had a great uh, solution to that, but didn't necessarily quite un- fully understand the plumbing marketplace. So we joined with Upanor, who's a world leader in plumbing out of Finland, a European company. And uh, today we've the nearly 50 million joint venture that's uh, rapidly attacking a couple of uh, interesting areas in water. Obviously, water is a precious resource, so minimizing water leakage. But more importantly, that is very important, but also helping understand water usage in a home and being able to prevent uh, catastrophic instances and so forth. And one of the biggest claims from a a financial standpoint with insurance companies is actually water damage. And if that's something we can prevent, uh, that in itself is a huge uh, benefit in along with uh, protecting our precious resources. So that's the portfolio. I'm very honored to be the CMO leading across global marketing, e-commerce, and um, and the voice of the customer. Fantastic. That's 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 brilliant. And that I mean that's that's a great overview that explains exactly why I think uh, you're going to add a lot of value to this this discussion uh, today. So let me move us into today's subject. Then, so what we're talking about today is something that I call uh, the growth paradox, and I'll just explain a little bit about what I mean by that, and then we'll get into some of your experience. So the growth paradox is kind of a weird thing, and, and I'm sure most of our listeners will know what a what a paradox is. It's when two seemingly contradictory things are simultaneously true. So if you say something is bittersweet or you've got to be cruel to be kind, those are paradoxical statements. The growth paradox is is this. It's that it's that on the one hand growth is super, super important for any business. Any CEO will tell you that, any analyst will tell you that the markets rate growth above virtually everything. The paradox is often growth is the least well-managed area of many companies' operations, and only a minority of companies ever manage to grow sustainably and profitably. And just to support that, I'm going to quote one wonderful little stat from Bain and Company, did a piece of work two or three years ago, surveyed a load of companies, concluded growth was the most important factor correlating to long-term success of companies, but then concluded, and I quote, nine out of 10 management teams fail to grow their companies profitably. Nine out of 10. So that's a frightening stat. You know, nine out of 10 companies fail to grow their their businesses profitably. And it, and it prompts the question, you know, well, why is that? What is it? What is it that, that makes this so difficult? So to explore that today, I think we're going we're gonna to take sort of three three questions. The first, uh, Karen, we're going to talk about the importance of growth and get some of your experience about the difference between working for or, or with companies that are growing strongly or, or for companies that where, where that's not the case and the difference that it makes to the way that they trade and their relationships with third-party suppliers and their share price and their CEO tenure and morale, all those good things. Take a look at that. Then we'll get into a couple of the reasons why the growth paradox exists. Firstly, exploring how many companies get seduced by short-term false growth, which tends to, A, go away quickly, and B, distract them from some of the more important fundamentals. And then, finally, we'll, we'll get into what I regard as a, 
as a weird phenomenon. I know it's something that uh, you've got a few examples of where uh, as companies get larger, they seem somehow to lose focus on growth. Uh, and in the way that small companies are very focused on growth, larger companies are often not. We'll explore that as well. So I want to take each of those three areas one by one and ask for your sort of perspective and your experience in those, in those areas. So if we start off with this, this thing around the importance of growth. Now, I know that you've worked for businesses that have been growing strongly and for businesses where growth has been more difficult. Just give us a bit about you know, how, how you find the difference and, and, and you know, what, what, it, what it feels like within different sorts of strongly growing or not strongly growing companies. Sure. There are um, many factors that would uh, contribute in a positive manner to a growth environment. Um, there's, I think there's three key ones. Obviously, the category that you're in and the category itself has to have some inherent growth attached to it. So, so either it's a mature category that's undergoing disruption. A great example there is the automotive industry. It plateaued quite a, uh, a bit. Growth wasn't really, it wasn't growth. It was really uh, cannibalization. The market itself wasn't growing until uh, Tesla and hybrids came along. Prius being one of the earlier hybrid brands that was successful. But then you've seen how Tesla as a brand in a disruptive place for a mature category is is, is a great example of not only is it, is it a car that you're buying, but it's a complete experience. And the experience itself is delivered via software. And you know every few months you have a new experience with your Tesla because the software has been updated with new features, new functionality. And that's the kind of surprise and delight that that type of disruption is bringing to the marketplace. So you've got a mature category with a disruption that's that's happening. Another example in that space, actually interesting enough, is McDonald's. Uh, everyone knows McDonald's uh, for its core business, but I'm I don't know if many people know McDonald's was uh, responsible for birthing the Chipotle brand. It's their Mexican uh, fast food uh, brand, which was all fresh products, all fresh produce, uh, served, cooked and served there right in front of you. And it, they actually birthed that, built the brand, and then spun it out. But that was a brand that came out of their functional and operational expertise, but someone had the wisdom and insight and foresight to uh, address it in a very different manner. So those, again, are two mature categories, fast food, and we see all the disruption now happening in fast food. So moving on to what I would describe as emerging categories with uh, rapid growth, but also rapid decline. And um, uh, we saw that in the first phase of what we would call the dot-com boom or bust period. Uh, Pets.com is a real classic example of a company that went through that rapid growth and rapid demise in a very, very short period of time, about a three-and-a-half-year window. About the same time in that earlier dot-com, you think about 20 years ago, there was an emerging brand called Amazon in the retail space, online shopping. And their supply chain was one of the things that they really felt was of clear advantage in addition to having great prices. The delivery part was very important to them. We had the advent of a company called Webvan, a billion-dollar startup built out all of these distribution centers. And again, it went from rapid boom and bust in about the same window, about a three, three-and-a-half-year window. So you look at the underlying principles and the foundation to growth and where it's coming from. 
in those cases, they looked at the distribution part, but never really addressed what it was the customers were buying. It was the actual product and service itself that was of paramount importance. Amazon really stuck to their uh, their uh, growth path. They understood the cooking that was required in order to bring that to life and really delivered. They started in bucks, then they expanded new categories over time. We're always testing, and it's one of the things they did with the marketplace. They would let uh, other customers, B2B customers, come in to start a category of product, see how it went, and then actually then, if it got to a certain size, they would then bring it in-house and be able to offer it direct to customers. That's how they iterated, learned, used other people to help bring them category expertise, and then, uh, for want of a better word, uh, hijacked it. So, and then the third space is what I would um, talk is in this media world, this consumption world that we live in. A great example was Apple uh, with the iPod. The iPod itself was selling well. They had, you know, selling 100,000 units a year, but wasn't really until the advent of iTunes and how that experience allowed music uh, enjoyment to be uh, again, in a disruptive way to be to be delivered in a very different manner. And then very quickly, iPod sales went from a couple hundred thousand units a year to millions and millions and millions a quarter. Yeah. So it's it's just pheno- phenomenal to see these trends and how those tracked over time from a growth standpoint. Well, let me pick up one of those examples. I think one of the companies there I'm particularly interested in, and we've talked about it a little bit a little bit before, which is which is Amazon. You know, so. Um, often, uh, my observation is you, when you look at small companies, when they're starting off, they're super, super focused on growth. Many companies, as they get larger, almost lose some of that focus and become more concerned about other things, margin or profitability or whatever it is, and lose some of that, that, that focus. Amazon haven't. You know, they, they've been a company that's, that's been very focused on, on growth as, a, as, as an outcome for a, for a long time and that's that's quite quite unusual can you talk a little bit about your observation of of them as a, a sort of corporate beast that's kept that absolutely laser beam focus on the importance of growth right the way through their cycle well um, i think it's very very clear it really is from the top down with jeff bezos and his ultra long-term view on the market as you know in public companies they tend to go from quarter to quarter and are really driven by the quarterly earnings. We've never seen anyone who is laser-focused on ultra-long-term growth such, such as Jeff. And he's been consistent in how he talks about Amazon in the, uh, to the markets, to the street. It's a 20- to 30-year view he takes in everything he touches. So going back to Amazon starting as an online shopper, they themselves have built these incredible capabilities in-house in order to deliver those experiences. One of those was they were one of the very, very first cloud implementations. They built their own cloud infrastructure, the software and hardware to enable and scale those businesses rapidly. Over time, that as a business in itself that we now know today is Amazon Web Services, AWS, it is you know an $8 billion business for Amazon where they're reselling cloud uh, and instances to customers such as ourselves. We are a huge user of uh, AWS for uh, our brands. Uh, Linksys, uh, the Linksys Smart Wi-Fi Cloud sits on Amazon Web Services. We most similar. And again, 
they they have such a high rating in in a in approach and a pricing and the value that comes with that. But that's one of many. You look at acquisitions that they've done. They brought uh, purchased IMDb, which is the online movie database. They did that because they could that data that comes with that the meta tagging that comes with that database was a an ingredient they used to accelerate the launch of the Amazon Prime TV platform. Now they had the foresight years and years ago to buy IMDb, knowing that it would be built out and an ingredient into that platform. That in itself has fueled the success. One of ways they fueled the success of um, the Fire TV platform and Amazon Prime. They're very quick to learn and iterate. They haven't had success in some areas. As an example, the Fire Phone. That you know they had two or three shots at that, and it didn't quite go the way they'd hoped. But again, in similar fashion, uh, huge hits in the last year is Amazon Alexa, its natural language platform that they launched initially with uh, Echo, Amazon Echo. That in itself has, you know, foundationally changed how people can interact, not only with Amazon, the services that come in Amazon, but also other brands such as ours. With Remo, for example, you can, you know, come into your home if you've got your hands full of groceries or whatever. You can say, you know, Alexa, tell Remo, turn on the lights. And voila, you have your lights on and continue to enjoy the experience. So Amazon, they they really have an ability to rapidly uh, identify, build a product, bring it to market, and see if that proof, proof of concept lives or dies. And and as you said at the beginning of that of that section, an awful lot of that comes from Jeff Bezos, doesn't it? He's he's always talked about growth. He's always focused on growth. And what I'm really interested in is. It seems to me there are not many big companies that have that focus. One of the interesting stats, I think I mentioned it to you once before, is that very few big companies have got a position of growth director. And that's kind of weird, you know, because there's a director for everything else. There's not a director of growth. And it kind of begs the question, well, how does this company focus on growth? And who's responsible for it? You know, who's, who's writing the growth strategies? Amazon have got that that clarity from the chief executive, and he's driven it with single-minded focus. What do you think? What, what? Why don't more companies have that? That that or large companies have that real growth is really important. We're going to prioritize it. We're going to talk about it all the time. What happens to companies as they sort of grow up and get bigger? Speaking of growing up and getting bigger, um, just a quick point on Amazon. Jeff and his executive team. They have been together for quite a long time. I mean, again, with Amazon, you don't quite know. You know, it's hard to get data. But but from what I can understand and from what I see, most of his uh, executive team have been there. You know, ten to fifteen plus years. So you get that institutional knowledge, that in, institutional discipline, uh, really driven down through the organization, and that in itself is a key competitive advantage. So. Uh, Moving on to growth and growth, uh, the importance of growth. You know, interestingly enough, uh, the street really focuses on the percentage of revenue coming from new products, right? Kager compounded annual growth rates yeah. and where that's coming from. So it is a financial discipline well recognized. That being said, is you know, when you talk to organizations, you know, who's responsible for growth, 
you do get head scratching. You do get the oh, um, you know the universal Y symbol. Yeah, right. But but uh, I'm very heartened uh, as an example, looking at a major major um, uh, corporate entity that was a conglomerate in in many many businesses and what they have done. I'm very proud for you, Andy and I, to see someone who was CMO of this organization now have the title of Vice Chairman Dash Innovation. Innovation is at the heart of what this person's responsibility is, and that is Beth Comstock with a GE. And Beth has, you know, risen through the GE organization, coming up through NBC Universal Studios, who GE owned. And you know, really proved her worth there uh, with innovation coming from new products, new shows, new markets to where she is today. And how she's achieved that uh, was again how probably you and I would view large organizations where we peel off you know 10, 15 percent to look at ways to improve and bring new products to market with uh, Tiger teams or SWAT teams, for want of a better word, to use uh, the military analogy that we. I'll hear a lot about today. And Beth uh, recognized that a couple of things, but more importantly, that software is eating the world. And software is a way to unify all the outlawing elements of their organization, not only internally, but also externally in how they're bringing markets and solutions to customers. And so she pioneered this pilot program that was about how they could rapidly iterate and bring uh, um, variants of products to market sooner. That today has now evolved to an institutionalized product called FastWorks. And FastWorks, the name very clearly describes what it's about, but software is the underlying principle. And by the way, as an aside, um, the majority of recruiting efforts that GE is doing today are for software engineers. The industrial of internet things is a huge focus for them. They really recognize the importance of data. But back to the example of FastWorks, one result of that program, they applied it to their engine business. As you know, they're they're, uh, major uh, market leaders in both aviation and transportation, primarily uh, locomotive um, engines and, and so forth. And in one instance, they brought a brand new engine platform to market in half the time, in 30 months rather than the 60 plus months the journey takes to bring that product to market. Under the FastWorks innovation program, she was able to do that. So that's one example of innovation being applied to existing businesses. Yeah. She does have many other hats to wear as vice chairman, including imagine, uh, managing Google or GE Ventures. So she gets exposed uh, to a lot of great ideas that she can, with the benefit of the GE um, knowledge base, to be able to uh, advise, test, proof of concept, and roll out in short order. And that's that's a great example of a business that is seeking to grow, what I would say, in the right way by sort of propositional development, new new product uh, innovation genuinely offering new things to consumers and growing in that in that way i I describe that as good growth likely to be long-term likely to be profitable that's the way to go but not all companies go that way and again you and i have touched on uh how easy it is particularly i think in publicly quoted companies to get a little bit seduced by a sort of short-term promotionally driven 
uh, drive for growth, um, uh, driven by cutting price, running advertising, uh, uh, running a lot of promotions, etc. That again seems to be one of the sort of doom loops that companies get into, and it often drags them away from thinking carefully about uh, propositional development and innovation. And they can spend an awful lot of time and money and resources uh, desperately trying to outpromote uh, competitors. Now, again, I know you've seen companies in both of those situations. You want to talk a little bit about the contrast between that, you know, good growth, proposition-driven, and sort of false growth, short-term, promotionally-driven uh, growth. Sure. Um, this is something that's probably a little near and dear to your heart, so you may be able to uh, amplify a lot more than I can. But one actually is in the packaged goods business. Um, if you go back, boy, about 30-plus years, you had a handful of coffee brands. You had MJB, Hills, uh, Folgers, Nescafe, and so forth. And you look at where those brands are today, vis-a-vis brands such as uh, Starbucks. Who would ever thought you'd be paying 3 $4 for a cup of coffee uh, 30 years later? And how they really, in a, in a disruptive manner, focus on the quality and the experience that you can enjoy coffee with. Now, Nestle, with Nescafe, has, I think, done a strong job in continuing uh, to, to regain that market share through uh, new ways to deliver those coffee experience. The pods are an example of that with Nespresso. So, uh, again, who would have ever known that something that I think people saw as, you know, nearly a commodity, you know, the quality wasn't there, a lot was freeze-dried. And today, actually, McDonald's globally, after Starbucks, they are now number three largest seller coffee globally with their McCafe uh, brand. Again, another way of being disruptive and looking at growth and being able to deliver an experience that addresses that, but based on foundational um, understanding that they have for the category. But yeah, today, McCafe is the third largest coffee um, brand in the world. Yeah, it's another, it's another great example. And um, what about the other side of the coin, the companies that don't do that smart propositional stuff? Let me take you back a bit to your agency days. There must have been times when you were and your colleagues were frustrated by clients that were very executionally driven and not really able to address some of the propositional um, opportunities. Was that... Is that something you have much uh, much experience of back in those days? Absolutely. We I think we all have uh, stories of clients where you could see the writing in the wall where they were um, making business decisions based on price alone, and we all know that that's a race to the bottom. And you know you advise clients, but again back to that short term, quarter to quarter focus, which I think really does impede the ability to. We all know it takes time. And today, uh, time is a, such a precious resource. Things happen quickly. The internet itself is a great leveler. Uh, software today is about 20% of the cost to do something than it was you know, 10 to 15 years ago. So you can quickly uh, you know, iterate and, and develop proof of concepts. But I would say there's been examples you look at in the... Um, in the residential phone service world, right? You had brands such as MCI and WorldCom, brands such as Sprint and so forth, bringing products to market all based on price. MCI, WorldCom, it was a very price-driven 
uh, proposition. They don't exist today. On the other hand, Sprint exists. And Sprint recognized that they were the first to bring to market, rather than the twisted pair copper wire um, Mm -hmm. solution that most uh, telcos were using, Sprint was the very first to have laid fiber optic cables throughout the United States. So their network was 100% fiber optic. The benefit of that was call quality, superior call quality. So good you could hear a pin drop. And that was an integral part of the communications and advertising that we used to deliver the sprint value message. Of course, value needs to be still there when it comes to kind of a price relationship, but the quality itself put it over the top. So sprint is a brand exists today, hugely successful, MCI WorldCom. Final thing I just want to explore with you uh, a little bit before b- before we wrap up, because, again, you've had experience of this, is um, companies that are owned privately versus publicly. And, again, one of the debates that you hear sometimes is that as far as growth is concerned, private ownership can have some advantages because you're able to plan more more long term and 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 uh, you know make some investments and, and ride through the some of the short term ups and downs, whereas publicly quoted companies often get pushed off doing the things that would deliver longer term growth because of the pressures of delivering the quarterly results and all the rest of it. What do you think about that? Is that a is that a, a fair analysis? Is that a does that make a difference as regards orientating companies for growth? I think it is certainly a a. Um point of view that is important to understand and it does exist uh, in a quite a lot of areas and categories i think the, f- the fundamental thing though is being able to communicate to the street and to the market of what your vision is and jeff bezos and amazon jack at alibaba uh to some degree uber i think has done a good job albeit that they have regulatory yeah. climates that they have to deal with but they themselves are, they, they're not a transportation company, they're not a logistics company, and they're very clear in that they are a technology company. And so they communicate to the street and, and to the markets of what the horizon looks like to value their businesses. And Amazon has really uh, been able to tell that story extremely well. So I think it comes back to how well you communicate. And that's, I think, a foundation that you see it's working for GE. They have a CMO in that role. Uh, you know, Jack inherently at Alibaba has been very strong on that vision of long-term growth and what he's doing. Uh, and then you go to markets where they have f- floundered due to the fact that the executive team hasn't done a good job of being, being able to explain that not just the next quarter, but the next year and five and ten years out and what that journey is going to be that you need to go under with them. Great point, great point. So actually, it's probably more about getting expectations right and communicating clearly and persuasively what your strategy is. And if you can do that, you can plan for the long term and deliver growth when you, whether you're privately owned or whether you're, you're quote, a quoted company. Private companies have a lot more freedom for sure. Pulling that together then, and then if we sort of go back to where we started, which was a combination of looking at the importance of growth and how that's a that's a huge positive attribute if you can deliver it, and yet the paradox being a lot of companies, nine out of ten companies seem to fail to deliver profitable growth. If you were giving uh, advice to a business, you were saying there are two or three things here that if you want to be good at growth in the medium to long term, I'd advise you to be thinking about these things. What would those two or three things be, Kieran? A defensible proposition. 
that is so important. I, I can't believe the amount of times I've um, I advised a lot of startups. And you sit there and and you know and mature companies. You sit there and listen to what they're talking about, and you go, "Hang on, how is this defensible?" And they go, uh, "Right, they stumble." So first and foremost, it's got to be a defensible proposition, uh, a quick proof of concept, so you can uh, rapidly iterate. And then thirdly and foundationally, it is the 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 discipline and focus not to move off the needle. You find companies that rapidly start to deploy resources and stretch those resources, and what they started to do no longer looks the same. So either what you your first um, goal, if it's not going to be achievable, then keep those precious resources to deploy in another manner. Slack, which is the messaging platform, is a great example. They were down to their last you know, millions of dollars, and they're actually going to return those dollars to their venture partners because um, they weren't making headway. And then they recognized uh, this notion of a new way to message internally within large organizations, and they did the quick pivot. So uh, the ability to quickly move off uh, the initial direction and have the fortitude to do that. I think that in itself is is very important. When I ran agencies, um, it was incredible to me to see the amount of other agencies chase clients. And I was very clear on what type of client worked best with our agency, uh, what type of personas made sense, using buyer personas, the term we use in the online world today, uh, with user experience. And I actually had a 75% win rate, new business win rate in the agency business because I actually turned down a lot of pitches for that very reason. Yeah, yeah, cool. So defensible proposition, the ability to iterate and 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 check check that it's it's working and go and move fast and then stick to your guns, stick to the stick to the direction, be prepared to ride through and and believe in that, believe in the strategy. And and one more as part of the third one, I would say it's not prepared to stick to your guns. Be prepared to also change. So I think as you think about where you're going, the, the plan B and C should also be in parallel in the back of your mind because you can maybe jump train tracks very, very quickly and continue that journey even faster. By different route, yeah. Cool, fantastic. Kieran, that is, that is great. Thank you very much indeed for sparing the time and for, and for talking uh, with us today and for giving us all those great examples from your, from, from your experience. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much. And... Uh, I'll leave you to the sunny, uh, sunny West Coast. When you opened up, you talked about, you know, a paradox. And given the week that it has been here in the United States, uh, just coming in this morning, I was listening to on the radio safety dance from Men Without Hats from the 80s. And it, yeah. talk about the ultimate paradox given the week that we're in. So thank you. Absolutely. I really appreciate the time. And thank you uh, all for listening today.